Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. So Simon, um, well you, you interviewed Lizzie Carr, or um, as she's known on Instagram, Lizzie Outside, right? Yep, that's absolutely right, Nick. And it was uh, great to chat with her. Uh, before we got the recording going, uh, we actually found out that we had both been to the same college and done the same course, which is a bit of a small world. But um, Lizzie Carr has done some major adventures and she's also an environmental activist. So we talked about all of those things. Uh, her journey into stand-up paddleboarding was a bit of an odd one. Uh, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and it was uh, only in her recovery from that that she discovered stand-up paddleboarding. But she's credited the, the sport with putting on, her on the direction that she's following at the moment and uh, she's making a huge difference in terms of plastic and environmental awareness. And she's doing that through her Plastic Patrol organization which we also talk about a lot during the episode that's a fantastic initiative it is an incredible initiative and if i could encourage anyone to take any action after this uh, after listening to this episode it would be to join plastic patrol download the app and start uh, logging your finds and your discoveries because it's only with that sort of data that uh, you can leverage government and brands to uh, reduce their environmental impact and of course the application is worldwide so you can do it wherever you are she she's written a book as well hasn't she yeah that's right it's uh, a book about the best places to paddleboard in the uk um we discuss some of her most favorite places in the interview and if you are interested in reading lizzie's book we'll link to it in the show notes now the audio quality on this is a little bit patchy so apologies for that and just to remind you that this was recorded during the lockdown period. So here it is, my interview with the very inspirational Lizzie Carr. So today's guest on SUP FM is Lizzie Carr, who's also known as Lizzie Outside Online. Uh, I first became aware of Lizzie back in 2016 when she was first to paddleboard the length of the UK's canals and rivers to bring attention to the state of these waterways. And since then, she's crossed the English Channel solo, been the first to paddleboard the Hudson River up into uh, New York City. And she's got a heap of other amazing achievements, including founding Plastic Patrol, which is a movement and a charity focused on eliminating the effect of plastics across the, the aquatic environment and elsewhere. Lizzie, it's great to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. Excited to be on. We've got a huge amount that we can talk about. But before we start, I know that SUP's a, a real passion of yours. And uh, it's always interesting to hear about um, the first exposure and experience of the sport. So how did you discover stand-up paddle? So my very first time paddleboarding was in the Isles of Scilly, actually. My dad lives over there. And um, we were sat on a beach one day just looking out onto the water. And I saw somebody on a paddleboard. And I just thought, I have to try this. This looks incredibly relaxing and obviously like a little bit of exercise as well so I found a local club um, on another beach just down the road 
um, and borrowed a board. I don't know how I managed to convince them that I'd be perfectly fine just going out on my own doing it. Um, but as soon as I tried it, I was just hooked. I knew I'd sort of found I'd found my thing, um, and sort of, I was in my mid twenties at the time. So it was quite nice to feel like I'd actually sort of discovered something finally that I could really kind of get myself into and could see myself doing like for a long time to come. Yeah, and and it's beautiful the Silly Isles. My my brother goes there every summer, and uh, beautiful crystal clear water, isn't it? Almost sort of a tropical look to it. Oh, honestly, if I and I, I really can't like say enough how beautiful that place is. And I was I've been really lucky because my dad's lived there since I was little, so I've grown up spending my summers over there. And it's just the most magical place in in the UK. And I just every time I go back, I look forward to it. Um, especially now because I do go out and paddleboard and there's lots of little um, off islands that you can access and it's just incredible so if you can go and if you're into paddling and you can go somewhere in the UK and um, yeah I think Pad- uh, Isles of Scilly is definitely top of my it'll always be top of my list and and it you know although you'd think it's quite exposed because obviously it's out there in the a little way offshore and in, in the Atlantic there are mm. the sheltered sides of it of it aren't there that make paddling relatively uh unproblematic yeah so there's one um i think it's the briar which is the island that's kind of the, the first one to hit the atlantic and there's um a section of that uh, coastline called hell's bay which i think basically sums up the, the fact that you don't want to paddleboard on it um, but there's lots of really calm channels between other islands that you can paddle around in my book i've actually dedicated two routes to the isles of Scilly. Um, and, and in those channels and also one going out towards the East Niles so that you can see the, the, the seals and actually like spend time with them, which is really beautiful as well. Amazing, amazing. And um, you mentioned your book there. So um, so uh, um, when was that published? It was a couple of years ago, but it's, a, it's about the best paddling locations in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, it's my 50 favourite places to paddle in the UK. Um, it came out in October 2018, actually. So yeah, um, nearly, wow, yeah, quite a while ago. Um, and it's just obviously having done quite a lot of paddleboarding, particularly in the UK, lots of people would come to me and ask for my favourite places. So for me, it just made sense to kind of collate them all together and put a lot of practical information in there as well that people don't often find online when they want to go out and paddleboard. Absolutely, because people tend to favour their local spots, but um, it, it we don't really have sort of one book which shares, you know, variety around the UK. So uh, I will, uh, well, we know which one's your, your favourite location. Um, <laughs> when we get to the end, um, we'll get some other tips from you, if that's okay. Of course. So just sort of um, looking at, um, at you and your career and uh, thus far um, we're obviously living in sort of fairly challenging times at the moment my guess is is that you're as locked down as, as I am and uh, staying off the water and I guess in adversity breeds opportunities and I guess clarity of purpose but I know that this isn't your first lockdown your first social isolation you, you went through uh, quite a a health issue a few years ago which sort of fundamentally changed your 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 direction in in life and just interested to to find out how things have changed since your um, your battle with cancer yeah like life has changed a lot i've always said that my cancer diagnosis was the catalyst to every change that i've made since in my life and to be honest, it was because of cancer that I even thought about starting paddleboarding. Like I'd finished radiotherapy, I'd gone to go and stay with my dad 
um, because I wasn't allowed to be near um, near people and I couldn't go and stay with um, other family members. So um, I sort of isolated myself there for a bit. And um, yeah, we would just watch people on the beach, watch the paddle waters. And I just, I literally just thought, this is what I have to do. So calming, so relaxing. And I've just been absolutely obsessed with it since. It really does have a, a way of getting hold of you. Um, my first experience of paddleboarding was with a, in a, I think, 15, 20 mile an hour headwind with horizontal rain. And I fell off about 30 times and it still managed to get it, its hooks into me. So uh, so it was very surprising. But um, and, and it can be as gentle, I guess, as you, you want. And it's a very sort of holistic um, type of sport as well, isn't it? And very good for the mental as well as the, the physical health. that's the bit that I found most surprising is that I'd taken it up really just to support me physically as a low impact way of getting stronger but what I found was that actually that the mental benefits were completely unexpected but also at that time in my life so so important and but I suppose like looking looking back at my diagnosis and how that's ultimately changed everything for me I really wouldn't I really wouldn't have even dreamt up the life that I live now. Like it was so far from my reality at the time that I couldn't have even thought about the things that I'm doing now. And I have paddleboarding to thank so much for, for the journey that I've been on. That's incredible. And, and what were you doing before um, your diagnosis? Were you stuck in the rat race? <laughs> yeah, I was working at a creative agency, project managing in London, so very much... Um, a part of the rat race, feeling really unfulfilled, measuring my success by my paychecks and my job titles, just the way that you're conditioned to do, you know, go to uni, get a degree, go and start a, um, oh, what are they called, a graduate programme and just get into the world of work because that's what that's what life is all about. And it took my illness for me just to take a step back and say, what am I doing? What am I part of? This isn't, this isn't me. And I think being 25 when I was diagnosed obviously that was incredibly hard because I was very I was the only person that I had ever encountered that had experienced cancer and to me I just heard death sentence I couldn't I just couldn't comprehend it it was it was it's just such a complex situation to be in for somebody so young and um, and at that age there really there really wasn't the support that there is now for it um I forgot what I was going to say. I've lost my train of thought. Oh, that was it. No, I remember now. Um, but one of the one of the benefits of being so young was that I was able to change my life, and I didn't have the responsibilities. I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I could I could retune how I was living. So I feel really grateful that I was such you know, at such a young age when it happened to me because it meant I could just sit back and really question what was important and what I wanted to do next. And I don't think I would have had that same opportunity had it have been later on in my life. Mm. So so that, there was a step there between um, considering um, the future and, and what comes next, uh, recuperating on the Isles of Scilly, and then uh, paddleboarding the length of uh, the UK waterways. How, how did that uh, string together? It was a really like disjointed journey, actually. I, I'd come back, I'd recovered, and I'd gone back to work because as much as I craved this, um, this sort of new way of living, I also really craved this sort of sense of familiarity and routine. 
and just structure that like cancer had taken away from me so I got back into the rhythm of work I went back to my job just kind of stuck into the grind and it was only after about a year that I just I really started to feel quite anxious and I I know now that that was actually a form of survivor's guilt which I hadn't even heard of at the time and just kind of feeling really guilty that I'd not made the most of the second chance that I'd had and knowing that I needed to do more with my life and I was still paddle boarding at weekends and just sort of going to the local canal and, and rivers and um, but not really it wasn't something I was thinking about sort of making a big part of my life and then one day genuinely one day I was sat on the train to work and I just looked around and thought I cannot do this anymore like I've had enough and if I don't make this decision to leave now I will never do it so I handed in my notice. Uh, I rang my boyfriend and just I told him I've quit. And he was like, um, okay. <laughs> um, but I just, there's, I can't describe that feeling in me. Of, I, I kind of had this, this feeling, this quiet confidence that everything would be okay because I'd overcome cancer and nothing in my life could ever be as hard and traumatic as that. So I know that whatever happens now, I'll get through it. Um, yeah and I quit and I spent my time afterwards just on the water paddle boarding really as a way to give myself the space and the freedom and the time to work out what I would do next and I toyed with the idea of being a yoga teacher or a social worker like that's the route I thought I would go down mm-hmm. but it just worked out like the more time I was spending on the water the more time I was paddling the more time I was out there in this place I suppose to restore my health I was seeing how bad the impact was on the waterways and this is going back to 2015 and 2014-2015 when this the issue of plastic pollution really wasn't what it is now people weren't talking about it nobody was thinking about it anyone I spoke to about it looked at me like I I don't know like I was just talking rubbish which ironic (laughs) and and I just kind of after being out of work and sort of paddling quite a lot over about six or seven months I just remember thinking how can I how can I make people see what I'm seeing how can I make people understand what this problem looks like and I've been reading quite a lot of um insight and it was all about like the very little that there was online at the time was all about the oceans and I remember thinking well there's so much inland there's so much on these canals and rivers and nobody's campaigning for this nobody's doing anything about this and I'm seeing swans like chewing on this stuff and I'm seeing birds nests almost made up entirely of plastic and yet there's there's no support for it so that's where the idea came then I know I'll spend my time paddleboarding the length of England and I'll photograph every single piece of plastic that I see on that route and I'll plot it in a map and so that I can show people what I'm seeing firsthand on this on this journey and that's what I did I um I did that I think it 22 days it took me to paddle those 400 miles and I camped up every night on the on the towpaths and cooked my food I had my stove and my sleeping bag and my tent on my board and it was just the most amazing adventure and I think it was a personal odyssey as well like at the time I probably didn't realize that there was this kind of eat pray love element to it that I was experiencing for myself um, but it was very much like an environmental journey for me and just trying to get people to think about the planet using paddleboarding and adventure as a vehicle to do that. 
Yeah, and it certainly seems to have laid the foundations for um, Plastic P Patrol and the app as well, which we'll get to speak uh, about a bit later on. Incredibly courageous, no support crew, just you know, all the stuff on your board. How did you manage the locks? <laughs> With great difficulty. They're the bits I look back at that traumatise me the most. Um, I think there was about 193 in total, and I had about yeah. 30 kilograms of kit on my board. Um, by the end of it, my muscles and my arms particularly were just bulging because I was just obviously carrying the board over locks, and some of the locks would be really shallow, like really shallow or really, like really deep, actually, sorry. Um, mm. I'd have to, I had to tie like a... Um, a piece of rope to the front of my board with a carabiner to then just hoist the board up. Like I'd climb up the ladder and hoist the board up. Um, I'd have to get my bags and just throw overhead, throw them onto land and just hope that they'd land on land. Um, mm. There were some really like tricky moments. And then there was one section that had about 15 consecutive locks. And I woke up oh, one day, God. got to it, looked at it, and I just laid on the floor and burst into tears. I think I was just, it was about 16 days in at that point, And I was ex so exhausted. And I just thought, I can't face these locks. I will get through all of these. And I just thought, right, take it one by one, bit by bit, you just, you'll get through it, get over it. And by the end of the day, it was like, oh, thank goodness that's over. It was just horrible. Oh, unbelievable achievement. They are just an absolute pain. And, and some of them come quite close to each other as well. So it's, uh, so I guess it's putting the, putting the board in, taking it out constantly. Yeah, exactly that. That's what that day was. And then you're like, is it quicker and easier just to walk with the board? Um, to the next lock but then also you've got to go back and collect all of your equipment as well there that yeah it just oh nightmare but I did it so it's all fine well that that's absolutely awesome so um so you made it all the way up to, you finished in Lancaster didn't you uh Kendall just short of Kendall a place called Stainton yeah so it was um just around the Lake District yeah and and whereabouts did you start I started in Godalming in Surrey right so just near that's the connected the way. network. Yeah, exactly that. It was. I started on on the way actually, and then um, mm -hmm. came into the Thames. Went upstream on the Thames again. Let's mm -hmm. not talk about that. Um, <laughs> everything that could go wrong. Um, yeah, I think because I was I was quite like a novice paddleboarder at the time. It was like my first big adventure, and I, I borrowed a board from the local club. I, at that point, I had no money because otherwise I wasn't working, so I couldn't afford to buy my own board. So I borrowed one. The paddle that I used was just this like really heavy, um, like the paddles that you'd use if you were going to do like a beginner's mm, lesson. Yeah. Oh, awful! Um, yeah, everything about it was just if I I couldn't have made it any more difficult for myself if I tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a absolutely incredible achievement in terms of sort of managing your your food and all of that sort of stuff. Was it all kind of freeze dried, or or did you buy stuff on the way, or did you stop at uh, the odd pub, or what was the drill there? So I mostly had um, uh, like freeze packed food that I would just um, heat up on the stove and um, like dried food. Um, I I've had a um, what they called um, what's the brand water aid? I can't remember the brand name. Um, Is it a filtering? Yeah, what they called? Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, fine. So I had a. Um, I had a water bottle that I could filter the canal water from, so I would just drink from that and use mm. that then to cook up my food, which, um, I mean, it's quite disgusting because it's obviously canal water. You can definitely get a sense of taste from that. And I was quite ill for the first few days of paddling 
but I think I eventually just kind of got used to it and it was fine by mm. the end. It's good for your gut microbiome, apparently. <laughs> cool. So, so um, well, and you, and you camped, you had a little, did, did you um, have any kit problems on the way? Did you sort of throw stuff away on the route? You know, because people often take too much stuff with them when they, when they, no. the first time. No, I didn't actually. I kept everything with me that I had. I had some problem. My fin fell off my board um, about four or five days in. And you know that feeling when it comes off and you've lost complete control of your steering and you're just going everywhere. And mm. I mean, the chances of what happening next was just unreal. So I pulled the board out, had a look at the bottom, saw the fin had come off. And at the time I'd done that, this guy was walking past with his dog and the guy happened to be um, the head of design technology at the local technical college. Um, and there was a lock keeper that lived like 400 yards um, along the canal that he knew so he knocked on his door they'd found a piece of plywood um, in his garden and between us we managed to fashion a fin that we fitted in like like wedged into the box Um, and obviously when it's in the water it expands so it fitted like it was a brilliant brilliant piece of gear um and then I had that for a few days until somebody could come and meet me with a replacement fin and it was it was amazing and I just think I was so lucky to have found this guy that did like design technology as a profession who had the friend that lived nearby like honestly you couldn't make it up it was just incredible you couldn't I I think they say something about sun shining on the righteous or something like that That's quite a bit of, of luck there. So, uh, I mean, obviously that that was um, what brought you to um, t- to my attention. You had quite a bit of media coverage for that, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I was really, really well supported and such a surprise for me as well. Um, like I really didn't expect it to get the reaction that it did. And I feel incredibly lucky that um, there was so much media support around it because the whole point of what I was doing was to get people thinking about plastic and if I could use paddleboarding as a way to get people aware of the sport and grow the sport but also become aware of this sort of major environmental issue then it was just a win-win situation for me. Mm, absolutely and and you know the horror with plastics is not necessarily um, the big stuff it's the micro stuff as well and uh, you know it really is a worry about how much of this stuff's actually getting into the well our food chain as well as the animals and causing you know catastrophic ecological damage in terms of your your trip up though what sort of sites did you see oh goodness just i mean nothing surprises me uh, on the waterways anymore like things that are found it's just all sorts there's so much fly tipping that goes on still um, and back then I think it's cleared up a lot now but back then it was just awful I think that the general idea that the more urban somewhere is the more litter you will find is definitely true but then you'll get some really beautiful rural places that are remote and that's then just for some people a signal to dump their rubbish there because they can do it without being seen so that's really upsetting um, and unfortunately, you see a lot of dead animals and you question, you know, what they died from, um, mm. which is really upsetting. And then just like I said earlier, like the, re- like the reason that I was prompted to do this, really, I remember specifically in London when I was first paddleboarding before I decided to do that journey, seeing a coot's nest that was like completely full of plastic and the amount of times I saw that on the journey since was horrifying. Like even now I still see it when I go out on the water. And I think until the day I can go paddling and not find a bird's nest with eggs in made up of plastic, I won't Mm. stop 
like campaigning because the issue yeah. is still there. Well, it's it's absolutely horrifying, and yeah, absolutely. I think anyone, I think paddleboarders generally get to see this stuff because they see it all from a different perspective, and it is absolutely horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Um, so, did you did you pick up rubbish as you went uh, went up there, or I, I guess you'd only got limited uh, storage on your board, and obviously you're um, you're trying to get the get the adventure done as well as um, as, as clear up at the same time. Yeah, so I didn't collect stuff. I mean, a few bits and pieces that were really sort of just um, needed to get off the water. But um, what I did was um, when I'd photographed it all and I plotted it all in the map, I identified the four areas that were worst affected on my journey. And I Mm. went back to those cities and I just spent two days in each city litter picking um, on my own and just collecting all of that up. And then at the end of it, I, I kept all of the bottles and I made a big raft that I then floated down the River Trent, um, just for fun. Um, so I, I had a back garden full of bottles. So if that bottle deposit scheme comes into place, I could be a millionaire. <laughs> well, absolutely. And this is the famous trash raft, is it? I've uh, yeah. seen photos of that online. It- so that was all from um, the waste that I collected from like going back to some of the, the worst affected places, mm. um, which was, I mean, it was horrifying but fun. So, um, so moving on to to the next first, which was uh, paddleboarding the channel, and um, in terms of the the pollution and the plastics that you had seen, had you started Plastic Patrol at that point, or or was that still um, a work in progress? Plastic Patrol was just an accidental name. It was a hashtag that I used when I was paddleboarding the length of England to just log the litter on social media, like to group it together. And then it was just a name that stuck and became what I called um, the cleanups that I was running with other people. But it um, it was already in use by then and I was already doing stuff like under Plastic Patrol, but there was no sort of formal organisation. Nothing was, nothing was yeah, set up properly. It was just me doing my thing. Um, mm-hmm. So when I did the channel, the reason behind that, and you have actually just um, talked about it, was to highlight microplastics because I'd done this sort of um, big campaign around the normal sort of plastic that we're finding, the sort of on-the-go throwaway bits of litter that we find in our waterways. Um, but I wanted to draw attention to what happens to that when it breaks down, when it reaches sort of larger bodies of water and the impact that has on the environment ecologically. And, I mean, at the time there was no research then on, on what impact it had on human health, but we know, we know a lot more now. Mm. and I would say like looking back it was probably still too premature like I don't think people were really ready to talk about that then because it was still before people were even just talking about normal plastics um but because I was so embroiled in the issue I was like everyone has to know about this this is urgent and important and we have to do it now and so I did micro sampling on that crossing and every fourth uh, mile I would um, drop a, a net in and um, there was a support boat so if you cross the channel on a paddleboard by law you have to have a support boat and um, mm. had a support boat that worked with me on it and we worked with the University of Plymouth and um, had all of those water samples analysed um, on return and every single sample we collected had microplastics in it and um, like hundreds of thousands of pieces in some cases so it was just it was awful because when you think that I was just me and a very small you know section of water when you scale that up into an entire body of water you realize just how much is there 
Well, it's it's frightening. It's absolutely frightening, isn't it? And um, absolutely endemic. It's a huge, huge problem to to deal with. But I, I think one of the, the the sort of principles and one of the things that you've done throughout all of your journeys is to not only sort of work on clearing stuff but also to, to pull together data and so on in order to to make change happen your, your third um, major trip out was uh, paddle boarding the length of the hudson river which i understand um, no one else had done before you'd done it but again that was a, a fact finding mission as well as well as a sort of engagement um, type connection with the u.s paddle boarders how did that come about yeah, so by the time that came around, like Plastic Patrol as a kind of the organisation that it is now was was quite well established in the UK. That was only in 2018. And, um, you know, people were really have been really engaged with it and have really supported it. So I wanted to take that model at, into a country that is as developed and westernised as the UK and has the capacity to make big leg- legislative changes but really isn't thinking in the same way that we are. Like we're actually really far ahead of the US or we were at that point when it comes to actually thinking about plastic and the environment. And they are one of the world's biggest consumers of single-use plastic and also one of the biggest producers. So for me, it felt like a really natural next step to go and use my voice and my platform to just try and create a bit of friction over there. So again, it was like, okay, I can paddleboard the length of the Hudson. It hasn't been done before. And um in, include various different scientific um, elements in that and the Hudson one for me was particularly special because there was lots of things that I could take as learnings from what I'd done on the other challenges and really make sure that I was um, I was getting as much data from as many different like data points as possible so as well as doing cleanups with the general public at various beaches and foreshores along the route, which was obviously amazing and the bit that I really loved the most. Um, I was able to do some microplastic sampling and also beta test a smart fin so that we could get information about water, um, motion, temperatures and like characteristics of riverine environments that could be fed back to the team that were working mm. on that smart fin technology. Um, so all these different elements that came together were just, for me, really compelling because it was working with bigger charities and organisations that are you know, guarding and, and managing that river and being able to kind of feed my data into their work as well with like bigger picture stuff. So that was a really special journey because it was the first time we were able to take Plastic Patrol kind of onto an international stage. Um, and just seeing the response there, like it was small, but... That's how it started in England and in the UK that, you know, it was, I would take people out paddleboarding in groups of four or five. I didn't care as if I could talk to four or five people, get them enjoying paddleboarding and get them thinking about the environment through litter picking, then that could create a ripple effect. And I kind of went out to the US with that same mentality. Like I'm not expected to change the world. I just want to, a few people to listen and to understand the importance of what we're trying to say. And this is how these sorts of things kick off. You know, it's about not looking at the the entire problem. You know, it's each individual piece of plastic. If we can take that out of circulation, then that makes a, a contribution. And, um, you know, this, this is why, you know, what you're doing is so important. And, you know, there, there are lots of people now looking at plastic. I know surfers, again, 
Sewage, another organisation I've sort of had some contact with, are, are now, you know, not disregarding sewage, but it's not so much of an issue as it, as it once was. Their absolute um, focus is plastic. So, you know, I think yeah, every single little bit, and, and as you say, each conversation, you know, if it changes one person's behaviour, then, um, you know, that then has an incremental um, effect on the uh, the plastics issue. So, um, so fabulous. And so you got you got engagement, and you know, paddling into New York City must have been incredible. Oh, really? It was. It was such a moment. Just standing in front of the Statue of Liberty at the end of it, and that had been a really horrific journey because I'd had all sorts of horrible weather systems. There was a storm. Gordon was leaving. Um, the east coast as hurricane florence was coming in so the weather systems that were thrown up were just so unpredictable and there were thunderstorms and torrential rain and really really strong winds and i think with something like that when the conditions get really bad you sort of have to take a step back and think there's definitely a fine line here between being a badass and being a total Mm. dumbass and i want to complete this journey but i also don't want to get electrocuted or struck by lightning um, so it was really hard for me because there were days where I thought I'm just not going to complete this. I'm just not going to get this done um, because the weather's so awful. And then every day, like the following day, I'd wake up and there would be this weather window or there would be this opportunity to get out there and like the tides and the um, the currents would work in my favour, which meant I could make up a lot of distance that I maybe would have lost the day before and I thought I wouldn't be able to finish it. So getting to that end point when it had been such like quite an emotional journey for me, like it was really, as well as it being physically demanding, it was really, really mentally challenging. Um, it was, was so special mm. because it was a lot, a lot harder than I expected. Like the Hudson people would assume that the um, channel, which was tough, would be really difficult. But the Hudson is like, for me, at at that time in those conditions, it was the channel times 100. It was just really, 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 really difficult. And there's some big old boats as well going up and down. Huge. as like It's what you'd see on the... um, on the, the channel except like every single day they're sort of creeping up behind you you want to you want to paddle in um in the shipping lanes because that's where you can get the most speed but also you don't want to get in their way because if you don't time that right and you can't get out quickly enough and you've got a crosswind and you're being blown in front of them they have right of way it's their right of passage mm. um so you have to just be really really careful and they just creep up on you they're silent so you can't ever distract yourself with and um, like music you can't just get into a rhythm and sort of just switch off from the world because and it's not even just the boats it's everything you have to be on high alert on that river all the time and that in itself is really exhausting so by the end of the day all things considered it just it's it's just really it's knackering and did you camp there or did you stay up rest up places? so the plan was to camp there but i ended up staying in places because i i thought naively probably a bit like the uk I could just rock up on the towpath, survive late, leave early, don't leave a trace, no one will know type things, like farmer's fields stuff. Um, but a lot of it's private land. Um, and also, you know, in the US, the gun laws are pretty loose. So I thought I'm probably not going to risk that. I'm going to like organise places to stay um, overnight. And that was the first sort of challenge that I'd done properly, where I had like, I had a, um, I didn't have anyone on the water supporting me. Um, I'd, again, down to I, these have all been like self-funded projects, so it's not like there was big sponsors behind anything. Um, it, it was just that I had I had a, a van, and um, my boyfriend came and just drove the van, so it, it made it easy for me to kind of at the end of the day get off the water and go back to that point and start again. Otherwise, that I could have got into like some really hairy situations there, trying to 
camping places because mm. like, along a, a large section of that river is this is a train track that runs like parallel with it and on the other side it's just dense shrubland and, and wood like um rockery and you wouldn't be able to find anywhere to camp for days so um yeah it was definitely a good decision to not um just try and wing it as i had with the first one there's a book called mighty by a guy called uh, matt crofton i don't know whether you've read it it's um available on kindle um but it's a fascinating account of him paddle boarding down the mississippi um and he did it round about the same time as a guy you might know dave cornfleet Um, and um, it, it, that's really worth checking out because he, he camped the whole way and he came into some uh, rather sticky situations, not quite a deliverance uh, type scenario, but um, pretty close to it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, certainly uh, it sounds like you had absolutely the right tactic. Then. I think so. Um, just moving on to, to Plastic Patrol and what you were working on at the moment, I, I downloaded your app this morning, so that's kind of fired me up with um, with some enthusiasm to to um, go on a, a beach clean and um, while we're locked down obviously we can't get out on the paddle boards at the moment but could you just tell me a bit about the the app and, um, and what it is that you're working on at the moment yeah so I developed um, the app uh, about three years ago and originally it was a way of trying to get other people to share data around this and they found on cle- when they were doing cleanups um, so I'd done that big uh, challenge in, in the UK. So I put all of my um, findings on from the map into the app um, and then just created a way for other people to contribute to it. So they would log litter by type, amount, the exact location, which is automatically um, geolocated um, and the brand of litter that they found. And for me, and I think this is such an important point to stress even now, that like, litter picking alone will not solve this problem as much as it's, um, like a really important thing to do it has to be coupled with scientific insight with gathering data with evidence building otherwise it's futile and I feel that every time we litter pick and we're not logging data we're throwing away hard evidence that can be used to challenge government and industry and hold those that are directly culpable and accountable to account so the idea with the app is it's kind of a mandatory part of our cleanups. We offer free paddleboarding, free yoga now, um, free parkour and other sorts of activities in return for people logging litter that they find during those activities in the Plastic Patrol app. So we've collected around 300,000 pieces in the app so far, which doesn't reflect the 400 tonne bags that have been collected because still people aren't thinking about data in the way that we want them to. Um in 82 countries now around the world so we're getting really like great global insight from it and with that insight we um we create impact reports so we partner with the university of nottingham and the university of glasgow and they work with us to understand trends and patterns and lots of different insights into the the litter that we're finding um, and that allows us then to go to the brands that we've identified and talk to them about finding solutions and um, measuring their litter impact where there's places um around the UK specifically, because that's where most of our data is, but also around the world, hotspot areas where we're finding more of their litter, how we can help them manage that, where we can potentially implement cleanup operations to help remove it, where we can encourage people to recycle better so that if they're picking up litter, it's not being put into a landfill bin, it's being put into the right kind of recycling bin. 
Um, and then we use it to lobby at government level as well to change legislation and also enforce legislation around things like the bottle deposit system, plastic bag bans, um, and other, other changes that we'd like to see around things like the extended producer responsibility reform as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of the app, it doesn't require a formal paddle patrol event. Individuals can download it. They can go to their local river. They can go to their local park. They can go to their local beach. And they can, if they log all of the the data from the stuff that they've picked up, that then goes into a database which allows you to leverage that information and influence government. And and also, you know, it's not UK based. It it is. You know, I've had a look at the app. That there's collections all over. Africa and you know all the way to Australia and America and so on so it's you know people can download that individually and make a difference yeah exactly that and I think that's a really important thing to stress because the I think a lot of people think that it's just for our cleanups and you can just use it on paddle boards but we want litter and it's not even just plastic we're like material agnostics it can be cans it can be glass it can be anything that you find in nature so what we want it, it, i think i suppose plastic patrol started as me campaigning against plastic what it's evolved into now is me and fifteen thousand volunteers around the world campaigning against single-use litter um, and eradicating that from nature because it's not just plastic that we find we find probably as many cans some, in some locations as we do plastic and that I mean we don't have to go into this now but that in itself has its own environmental impact um, like on the on the ecology of particular areas too so it's really important to log all these different types of um, rubbish that we're finding and the only way like literally the only way that brands will sit up and listen is if we can hold them directly to account through tangible robust scientific insight which is what that app does Mm. and otherwise without the data it's just anecdotal and it's very difficult to to influence industry and so on and i understand that you've been involved with um with the uk government in discussions and consultations is that right yeah so we're working with um the policy teams at defra we've been talking to them about how our data can be used to support um, government efforts and insight around um, litter in the UK, which has been a really interesting discussion. And obviously, like all these things, like with the corporates that we work with, the industry that we work with, everything's quite slow. Um, but that, the, the, truly, the reason we've been able to have this kind of access and the reason we've been able to have these conversations is because of the insight. And that's why I can't really stress enough how if people are litter picking, if they really truly are litter picking to see a change, they need to, to put this information that they're finding into a centralised database like the Plastic Patrol app so that it helps us with our campaigning efforts. So the challenge is out there to all SUPFM listeners um, download the app. It's available on Android and iOS. And, you know, I also noticed there's a lot of people who are registered who haven't actually picked anything up on there so you know even picking one piece of litter up makes a difference and adds a bit of uh, additional data now um something else which i noticed is that you've been walking in the corridors of power lizzie um how was boris i presume he's had a couple of other life events since uh, you spoke to him and did you manage to persuade him to get onto a paddleboard yeah i mean i only met him what six weeks ago now and it feels like a lifetime ago with everything that's happened since so it was just a sort of a couple of weeks before we went into lockdown and um, i did ask him about joining us on a paddleboard and i was told that he um he had a bad back but i'm confident i, I feel like it's my mission 
in 2021, probably now, not 2020, to get Boris out on a paddleboard, um, particularly because I want him to see firsthand and sort of witness firsthand what we see on the water. And um, also because it would be funny to watch him on a paddleboard, don't get me wrong. But um, I, like you said earlier, when you see it from the water on a paddleboard, everything is magnified. It's, you get a completely different perspective. And I know my experience of it, you know, I became like this active campaigner that I am now because of paddleboarding and because I got on the water and I saw it from a different perspective I was in a complete sleep walk till then so if I can get you know a government leader in the UK to have that same experience and hope that creates some kind of spark in his mind that we need to do more to save this planet and think about plastic pollution and I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen well quite right and make sure you get him to stand towards the back of the paddleboard as well that would be (laughs) be great that'd be great tv so thanks ever so much uh for your time lizzie i've got um a few sort of final quick questions for you um so we know your number one paddle spot in the uk already which is the, the silly isles what would be another couple of of options for someone looking to connect with nature and see fantastic landscape that, w- that we've got to offer oh that's a good question i think I'm biased, but I love, I do love the sections of the River Trent as you head down towards Newark that are really beautiful. And you can end at Newark Castle, which sort of the ruins just drop into the water and it's absolutely stunning. Um, And there's a route in the book that includes that. Um, And then I think Scotland has some really beautiful places. So there's um, Loch Sonart, which um, the views from around that, I mean, the views around any lock in Scotland are incredible, but that one particularly for me was just really striking, just like the gorgeous landscapes around it. Um, and there's another one, oh, what's it called? Let's get my book out, I can't remember of it. It's by Patak Falls. Um, there's a waterfall called Patak Waterfalls, and it's the lock attached to that. Um, and again, just the, the views around it, the snow-capped mountains and the crystal clear waters, it's just absolutely stunning. So I think anywhere in Scotland, and there's quite a few routes up in mm. Scotland that I've done that are in there, um, really beautiful. Um, the Trent, because I have to give Nottingham a shout out because that's been sort of my training ground for a lot of stuff. Um, I love the River Cam, um, running through Cambridge. that's beautiful and you can sort of go through and see all of the like architectural bridges um attached to the university of cambridge um and yeah i was a silly always is going to be my number one choice Mm. so um international now um bucket list places that you haven't paddle boarded but really fancy going what what's uh what have you got on your list oh that's a really good question i'd love um, I'd love to paddleboard in Canada. I'd love to do something on the Great Lakes. That would probably be my dream location. Mm, oh, that's spectacular over there, British Columbia and so on around Vancouver. Good stuff. Right. Well, thanks ever so much, Lizzie. I know time's marching on and you've got another call, but uh, could you just remind us how to find out about you? Sure. So you can find out more about me. Um, Instagram is probably best, which is Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z, i.e. underscore outside and then if you want to find out more about Plastic Patrol it's uh, Instagram plastic underscore patrol Um, and hopefully we'll have our cleanups up and running 
um, later on this summer. That will all be on the website, which is plasticpatrol.co.uk. Um, if people are paddleboarders and have their own boards and want to come and join us, your moored or kayakers or whatever, we don't mind. Um, you're totally welcome to. Like, it's really nice to just have extra people come along with their own boards as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll see some some friendly faces out there when we can finally get back onto the water. And in the meantime, do it all individually through the app. Lizzie, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been a really interesting chat. You're doing some fantastic work and uh, wishing you all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.